not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Two of my favourite films, two of Luke's favourite films, and the next two films in his alphabetical Odyssey, Animal House and Anchorman. It's our intention in this issue to examine Saturday Night Live 1975 through 1980, the not ready for primetime players and the impact they've had upon our cinema going, and then a whole long time later, 95 to 2000, on the cusp of the millennium. Where shall we begin? Oh, Animal House and Anchorman, probably two films I discovered around the same period, because I mean, I was going to university 2005, Anchorman came out 2004, so I think Anchorman was one of those films that was just on at every house party. Uh, you know, it was one of those DVDs that was just playing. Um, so I was discovering that at university. But funnily enough, Animal House is a film I wasn't so familiar with uh, until, like I say, I went to university. I met you uh, through student radio and you introduced me to Animal House. I think we may have watched it on one of your old VHS copies. Uh, and of course, a lot of stuff started to click because it is one of the first, I suppose, gross out comedies for uh for, for want of a better way of putting it it's in inverted commas there but um what's really interesting to me about animal house is a lot of the tropes that one associates not only with that genre but just you know university college films in general you know has been parodied to death in the simpsons and and what have you you know stealing a mascot that kind of thing um and i'm not saying that this originated a lot of that but it certainly popularized it uh the fact that you know you've got the frat houses that are opposing this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, Animal House, you introduced me to it, Fletch, I have to say, and um, a lot of the kind of cliches and tropes all started clicking into place after I'd seen it, and I was like, ah, so this is where a lot of this stuff um, came from. So uh, it was certainly exciting to me. But Animal House, obviously, um, you'd been familiar with it a few years prior to that, I assume. I had no idea that I introduced you to it. Mm. What an honour. maybe, or, yeah, I mean, or at least I was aware of it, but then I watched it with you, or, or something like that. I can't remember. It really, it really is difficult to, difficult to tell. But certainly, I think my first viewing with, was with yourself, yeah. Like American Graffiti by Lucas, Animal House is a film I've been watching for 25 years. When I was seven or eight, I saw Blues Brothers for the first time. My dad had a lot of films recorded off of the television, but it still felt like I only ever really watched 20 or 30 of the maybe 100 that he had on tapes. And the natural progression from Blues Brothers by Landis is to go back to Animal House. Now, a lot of it was probably too raunchy for me as a kid, and that's why, and it's funny how we self-censor in a way, I was more interested in the raucous final act, the last 20 or 30 minutes of chaos, that, when I was a child, was what appealed to me the most. And so, like with American Graffiti, where I went back to the last reel again and again, mm. every school holidays, I'd just watch a bit of Animal House. Because a, a lot of it didn't apply to me, and a lot of it didn't chime with me when I was nine years old. But the madness at the end did. Yeah. And then it began my cinematic education. John Landis, John Carpenter, John Hughes, and then when you get a little bit older, John Sayles. When you're a kid, your opinion of cinema is entirely defined by the films that you watch. So when I was a child, I thought Karen Allen was one of the biggest actresses going yeah, in Hollywood. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because she's in Raiders. Yeah. 
Animal House, Starman, which I'd seen as well, mm. Scrooged as well. I have the same relationship with Carrie. When she went at the end of last year, I reflected upon how her impact on me as a young cinema enthusiast was disproportionate to the level of acclaim she felt as an actress in Hollywood. It just so happened that she was in three Star Wars films, Blues Brothers, Man With One Red Shoe, The Burbs. So to me, she was the coolest girl on the planet. And you presume as well that Tim Matheson and Peter Rieger have these fantastic careers and Mark Metcalf, Tom Holch. And you grow up a little bit and you realise that for many of them, Animal House was a high point, even at that early stage. Mm. Certainly they went on to do other cool stuff. Matheson is, has always been a fringe player in that Saturday Night Live set. But for a lot of them, it was their defining role. And among them, we must include Stephen First, who I'm sure you've heard passed away this week. I know, week. yeah, sure. Um, I was just thinking, going through the cast of Animal House, um, who plays um, Donald? It's um, he, the, the other one I'm aware of him in, in terms of big notable films, is Local Hero, which is um, obviously mm. a completely different kettle of fish, but Local Hero is a favourite of mine, and uh, listener of the show, John Rydell as well, who was best man at my wedding, he, uh, he's a big fan of that. I remember that was one of the ones we watched on VHS a few moons ago. Yeah, and of course, a spin-off as well. I know you were talking about um, the SNL link, but Animal House, of course, being a spin-off from uh, National Lampoon uh, magazine. Um, a magazine that I've never actually read. You know, I'm obviously familiar with uh, some of the famous covers from the 1970s and that kind of thing. Uh, but I've never, I've, I can't ever confess to reading an, an article in National Lampoon. And then, of course, growing up as a kid, I just assumed they made loads of films because... Um, you know, it then became a little bit of a, a brand name to attach to vacation or whatever it might be. Um, and I think, I think to this day, there's some National Lampoon. Um, it's a bit like Atari, isn't it? It's almost like you can just license the name out or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it gets it's become it gets added to some really odd stuff. I see it attached to these days. I'm trying to think off the top of my head what it might be, but um, yeah, the brand has suffered an inexorable slide, and there's three key eras. The first one, the one that produced the decent films, two great films there, and a couple with a few moments. I've never been a fan of Christmas Vacation. My dad likes it. People like it. I prefer Vegas Vacation. During the eighties, at least, it was a brand, and there was some will to preserve the brand in the 90s it could be licensed out on a one-time basis and during that period loaded weapon one senior trip vegas vacation van wilder there's a couple of others as well i think loaded weapon one's good and so is vegas vacation these comedies at least had the intention of a cinema release and there was a level of quality after which around the turn of the millennium the rights to use the name became the property of a new company completely divorced from the original magazine, but for its less appealing, atavistic sexuality and sexism. And it's been dross ever since. Our consumption of National Lampoon and of Saturday Night Live has always been at arm's length. Mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live has never screened in this country to a significant degree. No. And it's only in the last less than 10 years, and very specifically the last three years, that... Most people will have any understanding of Saturday Night Live other than the films that are made from it. So it was about 10 years ago that Andy Samberg and Yorma Taccone and Akiva Schaefer began making their digital That's shorts. It, yeah. I think when that happened, most people didn't know what they came from. They just knew them by their titles, Dick in a Box, I'm on a Boat. They may not even know it was The Lonely Island and they certainly didn't 
in this country immediately link it back to Saturday Night Live. And that was a masterstroke by Lorne Michaels to bring those three fellas in at a time when Saturday Night Live was not relevant. And then in the last election cycle, in the last 18 months, I think now there's... I think now Saturday Night Live is a recognisable brand in the UK because of social Mm. media. And it's very easy to condense clips down. But even then, people associate current SNL with Amy Poehler as Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Alec Baldwin as Donald Trump and Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer. Now, those three people, only Amy's ever been a cast member. Baldwin's been on it plenty, but Melissa never was. And so we're still dealing with guest stars and stunt casting rather than the core cast, which has no name recognition this side of the pond. And that's been the case for quite a while. Yeah, they've they've been relying on um, heavily on a lot of the uh, guest presenters, haven't they? Like you said, most recently Alec Baldwin hasn't he been in like eighteen in recent months or, or in the past year or something? I was reading an article where he may have taken the title. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he's um he's been in some insane amount of SNL um, uh, weekly shows. Tom Hanks, John Goodman, and Steve Martin are right at the top of guest appearances or or guest hosts at least but the show's evolved and now they drop people in they drop people in more than ever i don't know how the current cast feel about that i suppose it started with tina fey as sarah palin yeah that's a few election cycles ago but i i think she'd already left the show and came back to Mm, it yeah but let's go all the way no no i agree i think i think she was Right in the middle of Thirty Rock at the time, wasn't she? I, I think she'd well, mm. well and truly left SNL by the time she was doing the Sarah Palin stuff. So I, I just agree. I agree with you. And so that's the interesting thing to me that Saturday Night Live is a cultural touchstone of more than forty years, but so few of us have actually seen what begat Thirty Rock, Blues Brothers, Wayne's World, Coneheads, Lonely Island, Coneheads. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Coneheads is possibly the most Saturday Night Live film of all the Saturday Night Live mm. films. And that's attributable to Aykroyd bringing back three other not-ready-for-prime-time players, including Garrett Morris, which is very rare. And then for the rest of the cast, recruiting current Saturday Night Live from about 88 to 92. To his credit, Aykroyd's always come back for films by Saturday Night Live alumni. A few pictures with Sandler. The campaign with Will Ferrell. Sergeant Bilko. The film with the most Saturday Night Live cast members is by Sandler. Grown Ups too, And Little Nicky's up there as well because... And it's that bad boys of SNL set who have always worked together consistently. Rob Schneider, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, David Spade, Smeagol, Fred Wolf. But we'll go all the way back to the Not Ready for Primetime players in 75-76 in its first season. That atmosphere of anarchism mm. that Hollywood wanted very much to monetize get on that wave and in the last issue we talked about Hollywood coming to terms with the new breed of filmmakers Coppola, Lucas, Scorsese a burgeoning counterculture biting satirical that was at odds with Hollywood in the middle of the 60s and the late 60s a Hollywood that while Midnight Cowboy Bonnie and Clyde Easy Rider were being created a Hollywood that still championed produced to great acclaim and Academy Awards musicals like Oliver and Dr. Doolittle to remain relevant, Hollywood needed to transplant the downtown fabulous vibe of gritty New York City, Velvet Underground, Television, Blondie, Saturday Night Live, Cocaine, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Dangerous, Irresponsible. 
Hollywood needed to monetize that. It needed to get young people to keep going to see films. They weren't. I think they weren't quite sure how to do that. It worked with Animal House. Just a couple of years later, Steven Spielberg tried to do the exact same thing with 1941. Yeah, yeah. Similar cast, similar players involved, and it bombed. And if I throw out a couple of other examples to you, would you class these as SNL films or, or not? Because you've got Caddyshack, Meatballs, uh, all happening in quick, quick succession, really, right around that era, haven't you? Um, yeah. Well, Caddyshack utilizes some of those. We'll have to take it right down to basics. So. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between a Saturday Night Live spin-off film and then a film which I would consider to contain so many alumni that it is, to all intents and purposes, in the spirit of and a continuation of Saturday ah, Night okay, Live. cool. Most people out there will be familiar with some of the films I'm about to name. A couple of them are very obscure, and it serves to show that cinema isn't the best way of... During the 80s and 90s, cinema wasn't the best presentation of what Saturday Night Live did well. Mm. Back in the day, Blues Brothers, and that was that. That was the only Saturday Night Live film for a long time, followed up by Wayne's World, which was a big success. Coneheads lost money. Wayne's World 2, and then some It's Pat, which is risible. Stuart Saves His Family by Harold Ramis, which is all right. It's not funny, but it's a decent film, worth watching. <laughs> if I remember rightly, on a budget of six million... It took less than a minute. Right, that's 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 a decent return. <laughs> so Lorne had no idea what to do. Then Blues Brothers 2000, if you could... Again, it's a spin-off of the actual show, yeah. but could it really be at that point so far removed, two decades removed from the original sketches? And even those sketches were musical performances rather than comedy sketches. Yeah, true. And the, the, uh, the decade, the, the century tapped out with a night of the Roxbury and superstar both of which starred will ferrell in a period where i didn't find him very funny because they hadn't yet found the right vehicle for him now caddyshack although it includes a couple of saturday night live alumni it's really a national lampoons gig harold ramis was from a second city and his partnership in the 80s was with bill murray as we Mm -hmm. know but it was written by chris miller and doug kenny who wrote animal house and they're, they're strictly National Lampoon. Yeah, Miller was, but Miller was definitely National Lampoon. It, it did, wasn't wasn't Chris Miller? He wrote Animal House, didn't he? And he he was on the magazine, didn't he? Write the articles about uh, his life in college that essentially spun into the film. Or am I getting my his, history yeah. brought up now? No, that's right. In the late seventies, uh, Lemmings was a, an improv troupe that when it appeared on television became Saturday Night Live. So Saturday Night Live drew its performers from Lemmings and from the National Lampoon. And as we moved into the 80s, a lot of the comedians that uh, comedians that we saw in films came from Second City, from National Lampoon, and then from Saturday Night Live. But then if we, when we look at Anchorman, mm. those people are from a, another specific set of improv troops, the Groundlings, UCB and Improv Olympic. Some of those are based in Chicago, and it's essentially anybody we could name. Mm. Greg, what is the worst fraternity on this campus? Well, that would be hard to say, sir. They're each outstanding in their own way. Cut the horseshit, son. I got their disciplinary files right here. 
Who dumped a whole truckload of fizzies into the swim meet? Who delivered the medical school cadavers to the alumni dinner? Every Halloween, the trees are filled with underwear. Every spring, the toilets explode. You're talking about Delta, sir. Of course I'm talking about Delta, you twerp! This year, it's going to be different. This year, we're going to grab the bull by the balls and kick those punks off campus. What do you intend to do, sir? Delta's already on probation. They are? Yes, sir. Oh. Then, as of this moment, they're on double secret probation. How do you think it's aged? Like I say, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Animal House, that anarchic uh, kind of film that was heavily improvised. I mean, I guess I guess Anchorman's heavily improvised. A lot of comedy, almost to its detriment, is heavily improvised now. But, I mean, obviously, they gave these guys, what, three million to make Animal House, and they assumed that, well, maybe we'll get a, bu- a buck or two back. It made, I don't know, over 120 million or so. Obviously, a, a, you know, a lot of it is... It was the first, it was an originator, you know, it really was. It, it was a breakaway film. And, you know, you compare it to the Ramones Rock and Roll High School. Have you seen, ever seen Rock and Roll High School starring the Ramones? Yeah, because it's by Joe yeah. Dante. Of course I've seen it. Um, I would say Animal House has aged a bit better than that. Um, it, it's interesting um, watching it back. There's just so many iconic moments uh, that, like I said, like the, your introduction, you know, from the beginning of, of the how a frat is... A fraternity is, you know, in in college, um, so, so iconic and like a, like I mentioned, moments like stealing the mascot, things like this. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff that um, maybe when I was rewatching it, and I probably haven't watched it in about eight years, less than that maybe. Um, moments where there was a lot of just uh, excuses to have boobs in it and things like that, and like the first couple of times I was like, oh yeah, that's good. There's a that's a good excuse to have some boobs in the film. By like the third or fourth moment, I was like, this is this is Benny Hill kind of stuff. By this point, this is this is getting funny. But the, the, some of the performances you absolutely cannot fault, and the the obviously the standout is is Belushi, who's um who's pretty mesmerising, and uh, even when he hasn't been in it for a while, because the, the film can be a bit inconsistent with uh, who it's focusing on uh, at any one time, and, you know, you lose focus of a character for uh, uh, maybe five to ten minutes or so as you're going into another vignette. Um, but Belushi, hadn't, he hadn't done anything in a little while, and then I forgot about the moment where uh, they're clearing the fraternity out towards the end and the beer falls on the floor and he, he just scre- he screams <laughs> he screams in uh, desperation that the beer's gone oh there's another moment where uh, he's just so distraught I think it's just after that isn't it someone throws him the bottle of Jack Daniels and he just he proceeds to drink the entire bottle of Jack Daniels and just casually says thanks I needed that and then he then throws yeah. it over his shoulder into a into the window of a car shattering the glass so I don't know there's some phenomenal performances but um there was it's definitely it was definitely a style of making that kind of film uh I mean even MASH the original MASH that was going for that kind of thing wasn't it the original MASH movie um where mm. you're just setting people up to uh riff on a scene you, you know people you know can do the job and then you, I guess, then e- see what you can capture in the editing. And, you know, a lot of the time, Caddyshack, MASH, Animal House, all of these films, uh, it's a series of vignettes, isn't it? And they're not always overly connected. I don't know. It's a very long-winded way of me asking, uh, how, how well is it aged to you? Trying to put nostalgia aside for one moment. 
I think Animal House is the greatest comedy of all time. Still, I don't see anything that betters mm-hmm. it. It's scandalous. Tom Holch sleeps with the 13. Yeah, and there's a moment where his his uh, conscience is telling him whether to conscience wins and he decides not to do anything he shouldn't do. But my God, there was a moment where I was like, man, are they going there? <laughs> it's, I, I, find, uh, I find those scenes honest, funny. Yeah. Ultimately, she's drunk, he's drunk, they don't do That's anything. True. And that makes it even funnier than when they do shag and she says, I'm only 13. And later on, <laughs> when she grabs him at, at the parade and says, Daddy, this is the boy that molested yeah, me. Yeah, that's true. We have to get married. It does, it does all have a payoff. You're right. You're, you're completely now, right. It's not about getting away with things. I don't think a modern film would even attempt that. No. And right. if they did, they wouldn't be able to pull it off with the panache achieved by Landis, Ramis, Miller and mm-hmm. Kenny. I think art, and especially cinema, and particularly comedy cinema should be dangerous in that way. Yeah, you compare it to a, a more modern equivalent, like the obvious one, this American Pie or something like that. They don't go anywhere near that kind of thing. It's, you know, American Pie is quite a sentimental sort of film, isn't it? This doesn't really have a lot of sentimentality, mm. does it? To its credit, Old School by Todd Phillips has a go, comes close, but doesn't top it. And Judd Apatow's films, are, Judd Apatow's films are rather conventional and conservative in a way. They do push the notion that we're all looking to achieve 2.4 children, a four-bedroom house somewhere in Los Angeles or just outside. They don't exclude minorities. That's not the intention at all. But there's no discussion of alternative lifestyles. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. So first off, Animal House is dangerous and scandalous and all the better for it. Holy shit! There were blanks in that gun! I didn't even point the gun at him! Holy shit! There were blanks in that gun! Maybe he had a heart attack! Holy shit! Animal House is far less improvised than I think you might realise. And I I do lament the loss of scripted comedy. Mm -hmm. Anchorman ushered in an era of improvised comedy at the cinema based around the talents of the UCB, the Groundlings, Second City. I was 20 or 21 when Anchorman... I think I just turned 21 when Anchorman came out. Went to the cinema with Bannum and Westie because it was a cinematic version of everything that I'd enjoyed for the previous five years. At that point, it's important to remember, Jada Patow had been in Hollywood for 15 years. He had failed pilots, one-season shows... Mm -hmm. And some pretty ropey pictures. So Celtic Pride didn't do well. Cable Guy was not well received at the time and didn't make a lot of money. And if the studio had thought that they were getting Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, Batman Forever, Ace Ventura, nothing like that at all. Yeah, yeah. So that was Judd Apatow's cinematic pedigree. On on television, Freaks and Geeks, one season. Undeclared, one season. So as Anchorman came to, I thought, well, Judd Apatow's getting a production credit. That's cool. And he's using the people he's used in the past. So watching that film for the first time at the cinema, these were all people I was excited to see. Dave Gruber-Allen from Freaks and Geeks, Seth Rogen in Cameo from Freaks That's and true. Geeks, Paul F. Tompkins from Mr. Show, Paul Rudd. And that was the, the, other than Wet Hot American Summer, it was the first time I'd seen Paul Rudd as a, a comic potential. And I thought he was fantastic. But the excitement with which I greeted Anchorman lasted five, six, maybe seven years but we're still stuck 
in that improvised comedy rut. Mm. It was new a long time ago. It was new 12 years ago. We're still through that cycle, and I think it's germane that in the next few weeks we see the release of The House, starring Amy Poehler Mm -hmm. and Will Ferrell. I think the moment had gone five years ago. I don't know what kind of reception this will receive. But going back to Animal House, it's the script that I think is fantastic. And You're right, it is vignettes, but another pronounced difference is that by the 21st century, anything produced, written or directed by Judd Apatow, all of the parts, except for the female lead, are played by comedians, usually comedians, or at least comic actors trained in improvisational comedy. With Animal House... They're mostly dramat- what we would consider to be dramatic actors. Now, Tim Matheson turns up in Fletch in 1941. He's kind of in with the SNL set, mm. but he's one of the exceptions. But you've got- Tom Holtz is exclusively a dramatic actor. Yeah, Kevin Bacon, people like that. If that film were made ten years ago, it would have the cast of Anchorman. Yeah, it's a really good... I, I hadn't it- even really thought yeah, of no. it in, in that way. And so who would have been bringing that to the table and, and casting it, casting it in that way is that is that John Landis? It's his film. He put it together the way he wanted to put it together. Even though you had all yeah. these people, like we mentioned, Chris Miller, didn't we? People who probably lived with it for a few years um, mm. from their magazine, for God's sake, and then they'd, they'd written the script. But I, th- I think Landis really did put the film together, didn't he? I'm assuming that he had a hand, at, you know, a strong hand in the casting. A tip for our audience: one bellwether when you're watching a film is if any of the writers have a cameo, and they do in Animal House. Hard Bar and Stalk are played by Chris Miller and Doug Kenny. Doug Kenny gets to be the one that says, what the hell are we supposed to do, you moron? Yeah. <laughs> With his <laughs> terrible walking and his that. brilliant yeah. trench coat and his glasses. Yeah. And that. Usually the convention within Hollywood productions is that you cast the writers in bit parts or as day players so that they're on set because otherwise the writers will be kept off set. That's ex- the producers want the writers off set, the money men don't want the writers on set having any say over what they you know, slaved over for the preceding three years and it's about to be butchered in the next three weeks. And so I presume it was Landis's intention there to bring them about so that they could write on set if necessary, maintain the tone that they were looking for as well. Mm. In, in terms of casting, Chevy was meant to be in it as Otter, but Matheson got that role. I can't remember why I think Chevy turned his nose up at it, because he is truculent. He's kind of the Morrissey of the comedy set. Yeah, I think I I heard a rumour, and whether it's internet legend or whatever, that that Landis had said to him, oh, it's an ensemble cast. But but, but, I mean, mean, it's it's an ongoing Chevy Chase joke, isn't it? That, oh, he turned it down because he uh, thought he was better than that particular thing or whatever. Chevy Chase is a man whose disposition is such that he was a writer. He was employed as a writer on Saturday Night Live. As they went to air, became a performer, and then was ready to leave partway through the first season. Mm. He has that, that's how that's how much he thinks of himself. Most people wait a year or two to then catapult off from the thing that made them big, but not Chevy Chase. Ten episodes will do for Cornelius Chase. Mm incredible ego and we've talked before about the fist fights backstage when he came back to guest host and him and Murray were fighting in front of people Chevy made fun of Bill Murray's acne scars Bill Murray shot back with maybe your wife wouldn't cheat if you were ever around to fuck her everybody knows Bill Murray can give as good as he gets in that Mm. regard 
the falling out with Harold Ramis, but generally speaking, he's not an unpleasant person all of the time. Chevy Chase raises the hackles of everyone he meets. So Chevy was meant to be in it. I'm glad that as much as I like him as a comic performer, and he's incredibly... He was so suave, handsome and charming. He was. In pictures like Foul Play at the end of the 70s and early 80s. He's really good, but... Yeah, I'm glad he was kept out of Animal House. Then D-Day is clearly meant to be Danny yeah, Aykroyd. Yeah, And I can't remember why, but Aykroyd couldn't make it. And so going into production... Ra- Ramus was... I know this isn't exactly SNL, but Ramus was supposed to be in there somewhere. I'm sure of it. I don't... Yeah, yeah, he was meant to be Boone. Right. Yeah. If we explain that to each other now, if I say to you, Luke, a film is going into production and we wanted Chevy, Harold Ramus, yeah. and Danny Aykroyd, three of the funniest men working at the time... <laughs> We couldn't get any of those. And the disparity between prospect and execution is similar in the production of Inglorious Bastards. I followed its pre-production. Tarantino had the script for a long time. For the Bear Jew, Donny Donovitz, he wanted The Sandman. For Archie Hickox, Simon Pegg. Hans Lander was meant to be Leonardo DiCaprio. He didn't get any of those. And when I read that the Bear Jew was to be played by hostile director Eli Roth, Archie Hickox, originally intended for Simon Pegg, was to be assayed by Michael Fassbender, who I knew only from Band of Brothers and a small role he had in that. 300, although I couldn't quite pick him out of the film. Eli Roth for Sandler, Fassbender for Simon Pegg, Christoph Waltz instead of the most famous actor in the world. None of those moves seemed at all logical. But in execution, it's unimaginable for anyone but Fassbender to play Hickox. Eli Roth's very good as Donovitz. And Christoph Waltz is one of the character actor finds of the century. Sometimes you don't... I don't know. I don't know how, but sometimes you don't need trained comedians, I suppose. If you've got a good script. And that's what I, that's what I long for. It's something I miss. And Mike Judge is one of the few contemporary filmmakers that's able to write a script with actual jokes. Mm. Not just improvisation. Not just... I'll throw some lines out and we'll see where we go. I'm loving Silicon Valley at the moment. I'm just catching up. I'm, I'm almost... Up to date on Silicon Valley, and um, you know, I'm sure. Where? Are you? Oh, right, right. I'm, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's a writers' room, that kind of thing. But yes, you're right. There are there are jokes, and uh, that's a terrific example. There is. I don't think there's any analog. I don't think that there's any scene in a Will Ferrell film which is as well structured and well written as. Yeah, we're gonna win, even if I have to go into the auditorium and personally jerk off every guy in the audience. That's a lot of jerking. And we only have 10 minutes to present, so. So? We're fucked, aren't we? Yeah, even if he's joking two at a time, there are, what, 800 guys in that room, so that's 400 times whatever the mean jerk time is? The what? Mean jerk time. I mean, it doesn't matter, but hypothetically, time is equal to 400 total jerks at a two-dick rate. Unless Ehrlich jerks off four guys at a time, and then we can cut that in half. How would he do four guys? He's got two hands, so that's two dicks at a time, right? Look, you have two guys on either side with their dicks tip to tip, so you're going full length. Four, see? Oh, from the middle out. That does make sense. Like two shake weights. Yeah, so what we're trying to do, hypothetically, is minimize time, which is 800 dudes multiplied by mean jerk time divided by four dicks at a time. Of course, Erlich would have to pre-sort guys by height so that their dicks lined up. Not by height, technically. The measurement that we're looking for really is dick to floor. Call that D2F. Huh. Oh my god. You know, if a guy's dick was long enough, he would be able to reach up or down to another guy with a different D2F. The longer the dick, the greater the D2F bridge. I would still be able to jerk it off in one smooth motion, 
I would just have to jerk it on an angle. So D2F sub 1 needs to equal D2F sub 2, and D2F sub 3 needs to equal D2F sub 4, where length L creates a complementary shaft angle. Call that theta D. Now, the orgasm oh, threshold oh, as a function of lambda sub I'm i. Such an idiot. Middle out. Middle out. Middle out. Oh, my God. How can I just. Ah! Guys, does girth similarity affect Ehrlich's ability to jerk different dicks simultaneously? Shit. Yeah, I think it would. <laughs> and that's that's writing. Apatow doesn't do that. And the listeners need to know, I possibly need to be reminded that I've got tremendous love for Apatow. He's been my homeboy for 17 years, since Freaks and Geeks, since Cable Guy even. Then when I got to San Francisco, the first DVDs I bought were Mr. Show and the Ben Stiller Show to see what Apatow and Odenkirk were doing before I knew them in their cameos and as they went to Hollywood. I think that Apatow can't necessarily be blamed, but it's oversaturated now. And I do wish that people would write scenes. Yeah. Like we got in Vacation. Is that why Caddyshack. Is that why Apatow's, Apatow's films are normally about 30 five to 45 minutes too long as well because, because yeah. they're, they're, there's uh, the scenes are so drawn out with uh, with the impro- improvisation and i don't know if the cinema i don't know if the regular cinema going public is sensitive to how these films are created but when the likes of you and i watch them we know that apatow's off camera feeding lines try it this way okay that was cool right uh do that line <laughs> all right all right yeah that's that's good try another eight, nine, ten times. Mm. It, it breaks up the flow, and so often the filmmakers will also clearly add in the edit, any joke where you don't see them say it has been added in the edit. A disembodied voice off screen means a joke inserted to punch it up. Knocked up, Scorsese on coke. Great example. It's I find it a little bit disingenuous to premise that these films are improvised, but then still, three to six months later, in the edit, you're still chucking jokes in. Patton Oswalt did that as a gig for a while. Patton Oswalt would write and perform the jokes in animated comedies, but only the bits that are heard from off screen. Right. So nothing that needed to be animated. The voices of villagers yeah. shouting at Shrek. It's really lazy comedy. I like a nice, well-written scene, and that's one of the reasons it's beautiful to go back to Blazing Saddles. A man drink like that without eating, he is going to die. When? So, I mean, by today's standards, uh, they're so subtly played and uh, quiet as yeah, well. Yeah, 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 that's very true. But, and this is the thing about Animal House, really crude. Just like Caddyshack has the turd in the <laughs> oh, swimming no. pool. I know, Bill Murray then eats. I love that moment. It's okay, because it? it's a Snickers, isn't it? Or a Mars or something. I can't remember. But yeah. it's a chocolate yeah, bar, yeah, he then yeah. eats it. And I love the shot that lingers just for a moment too long. Because you know that it's a chocolate bar. But the camera just lingers for that extra moment <laughs> for you to then go back to the thought, but what if it was a turd? <laughs> uh, we're now at a stage, 2017, where every bodily fluid has been seen in films. American Pie, he drinks ejaculate. Van Wilder, party liaison, I think it was, or possibly Sorority Boys, where a dude eats an eclair made from the spunk of a bulldog. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's an arms race and it's continued and there's a whole set of epic movie date movie movies that we don't even watch and they've got loads of gross out jokes. You're not going to top Animal House. 
John Belushi's introduction as Bluto is he's standing there and pisses on Yeah, them. he turns around and pisses on their feet, doesn't he? That's a great moment. And it's, re- yeah, and it's it, realistic. It fits the, uh, it's it plausible. It fits his character as well. Happen. It tells you about who yeah. his character is before you've, before he's uttered a line. And it's not worked as a set piece either. That's just him. It's, yeah, exa- as you say, it's representative of his character. What do you need to know about Bluto? He's a man who will <laughs> turn round, <laughs> uh, sorry, urinate on your kids. And so it's got a beautiful cynicism, Animal House, about authority at every level. The dean is there to be mocked. The mayor is a mafioso, has that line with Wormer where he says, I don't understand. You get the use of my streets. You get to run your parade through my town. So if you mention extortion again, I'll have your legs broken. Yeah, I could. I, I thought that was fantastic to have the mayor as a kind of mob boss. I didn't. I didn't. Re- I didn't get the logic of it, uh, but I thought. It, mm. I thought it was wonderful that that that's just who he is. He's he's a mob boss. A little bit like American Graffiti. At the end of the film, there are flashcards to show what happened to the cast. Niedermeyer killed by his own troops for Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> Greg Marmalade, uh, Nixon Whitehouse aide, raped in prison. <laughs> you can't get cruder than that. Films have been trying for 40 years. One of my favourite gags in the whole thing is um, Belushi smashing up the acoustic guitar. You've got, you've, you've got, the, um, you, you've got the, the, the moment where he just walks down. It's the toga party. He, another trope that, you know, very much popularised, I think, Animal House. And he, he, yeah, yeah, they invented yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And oh, it was funny, in my first year at UEA, I remember we having toga parties. And I did wonder if people were aware of the film that that was really in reference to. But, you know, a lot of them probably did. But uh, I, 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 it, I thought it was interesting that it was just... Such a given that you know there would be a toga party in halls. Um, you know, it wasn't a direct mm. Animal House reference. It was just something that people did. So I thought I thought that was interesting. But yeah, and he calmly walks down the stairs, and there's a guy who's obviously supposed to look like um, Paul Simon. Because I, f- mm. the other thing I forget about the Animal House is that it's a period film. It, yeah, I'd say, I think it's set almost the exact same time as American it is. Graffiti, 62, it absolutely is. It's so funny that we were talking about that just the other week. Uh, and like you say, at the end, you get a little bio of where all the characters are, and a lot of them did end up in Vietnam. Um, slightly, slightly more, uh, you know, off the wall circumstances, but um, yeah, it's a period film. Uh, I wondered if I wondered if there there was a nostalgia element playing into the whole thing. I guess if the National Lampoon's guys r- had written it and they were writing about their college years, maybe maybe there yeah. there was obviously obviously that element. But yeah, I forgot it's a period film. So anyway, yeah, the guy looks like Paul Simon, doesn't he? And uh, He's uh, yeah. he's singing some god awful folk song and Belushi just smashes up his guitar and and it was always one of my favourite moments because I always hated going to house parties and people singing it singing Oasis <laughs> songs on acoustic guitar. It really used to annoy me if people were playing Wonderwall and I was just trying to drink as much beer as I possibly could. Of course, I'm more <laughs> mellow in my old age now. Uh, I appreciate that everyone. Uh, is open uh, to their own uh, opinions and likes and dislikes. And uh, if people want to sit there and sing Oasis songs on acoustic guitar, they're more than welcome. But boy, oh boy, did I want to be Belushi and just smash that against the wall when I was sort of <laughs> 17, 18. No, I don't think that people should be playing tracks like that at a house party. I will paraphrase Neil Maskell in Kill List. There's a time and a place. And for you, it's a very isolated location where no one's likely to be. For a fucking hundred years. <laughs> People on the folk scene listening to those Simon and Garfunkel records, like Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Thyme, were they the kids mm. who were part of the anti-war movement and that kind of thing? They were, they, they were more intellectuals. This film, Animal House, relishes in 
in its anti-intellectualism that, uh, you know, people can't even remember what their major's in. Uh, you, you know, uh, you, you, there's lines like, um, uh, no, no, he says, oh, no, don't worry, I'm pre-law. I thought you were pre-med. Oh, that's close enough. Or that's the same thing or whatever. Um, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. So it, 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 the, the Animal House really it, it puts two two fingers up in the face of uh, intellectualism. It's just um, it just wants to see the system burn, really, as much as anything, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's all it's all levels of authority. It has equal scorn for all of them. Doesn't even really subscribe to the fraternity house system. It has the scenes with Kevin Bacon. Thank you, sir. May I have another almost erotic, gleeful malice on the face of Niedermeyer as he's banging his ass with a, the. <laughs> The pledge paddle. I just I had I laughed there because I thought of how much my dad likes it when Niedermeyer says pledge pen. <laughs> Animal House is a film out of the seventies, and I think the one of the reasons we adore these films so much is because they were made by filmmakers with a scholar's approach and understanding of cinema and cinematic technique, but also it was it was a jaded time of some cynicism. Mm but committed to subversion, and that's what Animal House does. A university is meant to be a seat of learning. This is the exact opposite of that. What do they do? At the end, at the end of the film, they've beheaded the founder of Faber College, Yeah. made it into a bust, put it on the death mobile. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there's that... Uh, it's difficult for me to sum up, but just on the brink of the JFK assassination because the 60s was a decade which opened with such promise and then bang, 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 Kennedy, King, Kennedy. And by the 70s, Nixon, Vietnam War, there wasn't any hope left. Mm. I, mean, I, I think a lot of people, I think people feel similarly now that we've entered an era, where, we've entered a time where terrorist attack, terrorist attack, and by the third one, that's just what happened. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The attack at the Bataclan was devastating. Then there was another in Nice. Then it was Belgium. Before that, there was Charlie Hebdo. And so even when it came across to Britain and we had our first significant terror attack of that kind, it was business as usual. Then a second, business as usual. We're meant to accept these dreadful circumstances. And I think that's what was happening with America. As we talked about when we were looking in depth at American graffiti, America left the 60s and descended into the 70s. A 70s that then, by its end, we've had Taxi Driver, The Warriors, mm-hmm. and into the 80s, Escape from New York, Urban Decay, Corrupt Politicians, Conspiracies, Lies. And I think that's a currency that Animal House trades in. Its audience is, has been fatigued. Well, you can't hold a whole fraternity responsible for the behaviour of a few sick, perverted individuals. Or if you do, then shouldn't we blame the whole fraternity system? And if the whole fraternity system is guilty, then isn't this an indictment of our educational institutions in general? I put it to you, Greg. Isn't this an indictment of our entire American society? Well, you can do what you want to us. But we're not going to sit here and listen to you badmouth the United States of America. Gentlemen! Audience by that point is fatigued by institutions that are supposed to represent something but have, have let us yeah. down at every turn. And 
audiences fatigued by institutional corruption. Mm. And that's the environment from which Animal House explodes. And, and in its way, holds its mirror up to society. But, as a lot of the best satires do, at a slight remove, just like MASH was about Vietnam but was set in the Korean yeah, War. Yeah, absolutely. Animal House is about the 70s. Set in the and, 60s. And the attitudes, yeah, but set in the 60s. So, I like that it exposes how base people the float, are. The, a lot of the floats in the parade at the end when they're just tearing the place up. Um, a, lot, a lot of the cheerleaders yeah. are dressed as Jackie Kennedy, aren't they? And uh, come exactly. toppling on top yeah. of the float. Um, I mean that that was a really More, shocking. Yeah. That was actually quite a striking scene. I remember when I rewatched that the other night. And more seventies subversion, and that will be from Landis and from all of the filmmakers involved in the picture. Uh, all of the the women dressed as Jackie O. Kennedy's head is on one of the floats. Mm. Uh, another float has a Caucasian hand and an African hand in an embrace that's ripped apart. There wasn't racial tolerance and racial cohesion it's all a front it's all a facade just like the carnival floats i've always found it beautiful that the death and bill comes out of that big yeah. cake so they've <laughs> they've smuggled themselves into the <laughs> eat me, eat me yeah. it's it's covert yeah. and Tro- subversive horse, isn't it? smuggled themselves in yeah exactly under the pretense of carnival and fun which is all nonsense anyway and then there they go they reveal themselves oh my god <laughs> <laughs> It's definitely some of the the most satisfying fifteen minutes of film you can probably watch. Um, it's uh, it's a great ending. It, it really is, and um, it doesn't let up for the last fifteen twenty minutes. It's it's great. So um, yeah, what, what an interesting analysis there. There's a lot of things that I hadn't really thought about. I'd, I'd clock the fact that when I was rewatching it the other night, I clocked the fact that it was uh, a period film. But I think yeah, instantly, instantly making a decision like that instantly gives it a little bit more depth than. You know, setting it in just just contemporary, uh, you know, mid seventies uh, college of some description. Yeah. That's really really interesting. Number one, you can always get the costumes a bit better if you think about how contemporary American teen films. Everybody's dressed so boring. Yeah, yeah. You watch well, like again, American Pie and and whatever. It's it's really really bland outfits. Yeah, yeah you're right. As soon as you do some, decide to do something, period, it will never ever date ever. Yeah, it's it's a smart move to embellish again at the um, sorry to elaborate again at the parade when Stephen first turns up. So when Flounder arrives with Hardbar and Stalk and um, Hoover, and they're all dressed in trench coats with their shades, they look like uh, an alternate Secret Service. I think Anchorman's one of the best comedies ever made as well, but I don't think it has that beautiful, cynical, subversive approach. It's not satirical. No, it's not satirical. It's um, it's try- it does try to make a social um point, doesn't it? And and uh, but it's mostly that kind of um, a little bit like Mad Men does, which I find a little bit annoying sometimes. Although Mad Men's one of my favourite shows of all time, but uh, it annoys me a little bit in Mad Men when they make very heavy-handed points about how um small-minded we were in the sixties. Uh, so we can all sit there a bit, a little bit smugly, and go, "Oh yeah, oh, we're a lot better now. We've come a long way now." Anchorman, Anchorman mm. obviously is making a point about equality, gender equality, isn't it, and gender politics. But um, a lot of it is just to sort of poke prod fun at how silly we were in 1974, as much as anything else, and go, "Yeah, haven't we come a long way? That's great, isn't it?" Yeah, but it doesn't. I can't quite put words to it, but it doesn't have the same bite. 
destructive tone that animal yeah the, the the same bite and destructive tone that animal house does animal house exposes all of those characters are products of their time it's a broadly sexist environment and fraternity is inherently a homosocial environment and one of heightened masculinity i was in the computer labs in uh, december 2004 feverishly writing an essay about the frat pack Anchorman, Wedding Crashers, Starsky and Hutch. And I was discussing it with a pal before she went off to do something else. Nine months later, I met and became friends with a lad called R.P. Glanville, who remembered me from that night, distinctly recalled being a few desks down from me and thinking, who the hell is talking about a paper involving Vince Form? But at the same time, maybe that could work and it would be an interesting point of view. So I got a friend out of it. So, um, you've reminded me, the essay I wrote, was about how Anchorman has a genuine fear of women. It's not misogyny. They're afraid of women at every step. Yeah, because it... You think about the, you think about the dialogues. Um, I'll punch you in the ovaries, yeah. right in the baby <laughs> yeah, maker. They've got a, a very juvenile fear of yeah. women. But it shouldn't be forgotten that that's what those frat pack pictures were about. From Zoolander onwards. Zoolander's another really good example. Where Hansel and Zoolander love each other. Yes, Zoolander ends up with Christine Taylor's mm. character. But it's entirely inconsequential. Once again, it's more like just a note to the audience to wink at them and say, but he's not, don't worry, he's not mm-hmm. gay. Yeah. You know, whether it's intentional or not. And most of those films that have come out of that improvisational scene of the 90s, they've got a, they've got a fear of women, I'm increase, which I find increasingly distasteful, by which I mean the older I get, the more pronounced it is mm-hmm. for me, the more glaring and the less I'm able to forgive it. Knocked Up isn't a great one for that. She's... I mean, Catherine Heigl was right to say that she plays a shrew. Hands on hips, wagging her finger. Oh, you men. I I think you're right. I I think that um, Animal House has quite a biting satire of the period of the mid-70s. Anchorman, less so. But it's certainly about attitudes. It's set in 74, isn't it? So certainly certainly about something. And you're right, they have an innate fear of women. But we are supposed to laugh at the characters. Um, We're encouraged to laugh at them. It's quite a, it's quite a safe space, really. Um, like I say, it's it's holding the issue at arm's length. To be honest with you, Animal House is exposing things, you know, th- through through the attitudes of the characters and what they're doing. Whereas um, Animal House, uh, sorry, uh, Anchorman, I think, is more of a like Mad Men is. It's holding the past at arm's length, going, hey, 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 how look how funny it was back then. Um, so it's a slightly different. Um... Yeah, that's it. There's a, there's a sense with Animal House of lifting up a paving stone yeah seeing all the insects and pointing yeah. at all yeah pointing at everything there oh god they're gross aren't they and disgusting and look at them look at them loving yeah. it there's such relish in the anti-heroes in animal house so where should we begin with anchorman it's a different set of saturday night live alumni top to bottom the cast is full of very good improvisers the performances i most enjoy are david keckner and Paul Rudd, because I think they've got two of the most difficult roles to make fun yeah. of. People like Steve Carell's Brick Tamland, and I never have. It's really easy to make funny an idiot that always says something completely stupid. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's much more difficult, like Paul Rudd's role, Brian Fantana. That's a tough call on paper. Yeah. People call me the Bry Man. I'm the stylish one of the group. I know what you're asking yourself, and the answer is yes. I have a nickname for my penis. It's called the Octagon, but I also nicknamed my testes. My left one is James Westfall, and my right one is Dr. Kenneth Noisewater. You ladies play your cards right, you just might get to meet the whole gang. Keckner's worked consistently and has always been a, a very reliable 
and standout second banana, but I wish that he had got some breakout roles. So as a vehicle, of course, for uh, Will Ferrell, um, this is this is a freight train. <laughs> you know, it, he, he, he really <laughs> is phenomenal from, from beginning to end. Uh, right from the opening, uh, where obviously over the credits, we've just got... <laughs> Got him. Um, little outtakes, little things he's saying aside off air that are just um, absolutely fantastic. And whether people are throwing him lines, whether he's improvising himself or, or whatever, I don't. I you know I don't know. But my God, um, you can almost feel like the the writer's pen just on fire with each each of these little one liners. And uh, right 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 yeah. from the beginning, uh, right the way through to the end. Like I say, he's um, he's a real force to be reckoned with. And I think. Apart from Elf, this may be the best Will Ferrell uh, <laughs> um, um, showcase that, that there is. And uh, having said that, though, like you say, the, the cast is ensemble to a certain extent. Paul, Paul Rudd's great um, throughout. What other SNL people crop up in this? There, there's, there's loads, isn't there? Well, it depends on the cut because uh, the companion film Wake Up Ron Burgundy features The Polar Coaster and Maya. And in the actual cut, let me think, uh, Fred Armisen, who I find always very unwelcome. Oh, do you not, you're not a fan of Fred Armisen? No, I haven't yet really got to Portlandia, or I've seen only three or I was four about episodes. To say, I'm sure it's I was about to say, he's that, really great in Portlandia, yeah. Not my bag. Uh, David Keckner was on Saturday Night Live briefly. Chris Parnell's in there as well, not a bloke I have a lot of time for. All right in Hot Rod, though, and five-year engagement. Ron Burgundy himself... As I've said, I saw it at the cinema before it became the cult phenomenon, and we adored it. And uh, about 18 months later, I got hold of a Will Ferrell Best of Saturday Night Live DVD. There were a few going around at the time. There was definitely one for Chris yeah. Rock, The Sandman, I, I think David Spade, certainly Chris Farley. You, you had them on Netflix until about three or four years ago. They were doing the rounds on there. It's a shame they took them off, really, because they, right. they were really, really good just to put on every now and then. And uh, I found out that... Will Ferrell's Ron Burgundy is basically his Robert Goulet in Yeah, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like the curtain is pulled back and you see the levers being pulled, but it has to come from somewhere. So I always feel you wish that they were um, completely original in the same way that it's slightly disheartening when you realise a lot of the characters in The Big Lebowski are just people they knew. Pete Exline, John Millis, yeah. Jeff Dowd. The Coen brothers happen to know these people. And so what you see on screen, yes, it's through their mindset, but also they know some cool people <laughs> that do wacky. But that—that that is art. You t- you take you suck up suck up exactly, what's around yeah. you and then regurgitate it. Yeah, that—that like that is creating something. I wonder how different it would have been in its original form because you you mentioned um, the the sort of uh, director video thing that they did, um, and and some of the other different cuts. I mean, there's a lot of footage from this that's been regurgitated and reused in different different ways i know that there was another whole the whole panda um subplot was sort of reshoots and pickups wasn't it it's funny as well because mm. uh, i cast my mind back a few months ago to um the local trouble podcast i do with james taylor where we talk about star wars the the internet rumors abound could be just because it was star wars that rogue one was getting all of these reshoots and you know it was obviously being heavily re-edited uh but we mustn't forget this happens a lot and this happens more often than people realise. I think it's more the age of the internet and franchise films that people follow so closely. But um, I think there was a subplot with 
like a bank heist or bank robbers that the the gang were following. Um, and I, I yes, so much. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've never. I've, I must admit, I've only ever seen Anchorman two. I've never seen any of the director video stuff they've done. But, um, but but yeah, I know that that, that uh, a lot was recut and, and chopped and changed. So intriguing that you know what the film would have been like under in a parallel universe. I suppose. Well, I got hold of it very early on. So as I've said, I saw the film. August or September of 2004, just before I went back to university, having recently returned from San Francisco. So we saw it at the cinema, and every cameo was thrilling to me because I knew these people from having watched Freaks and Geeks, having immersed myself in that thread of comedy for the previous four or five years. I suppose Christmas rolled round, or possibly just into January, and I bought the DVD, which came bundled with Wake Up Ron Burgundy, and watched it, and it's no great shakes, you can see why it's been cut, but it's a bit of a shame, for instance, that Chuck D of Public Enemy is one of the leads. The The bank robbers you speak of are a set of radical leftist terrorists. So the title is meant to be said as, Wake up, Ron Burgundy, because yeah, yeah. they're called the Alarm yeah. Clock. And it's Chuck D, I think Kevin Carrigan, Meyer, and the Polar Coaster. There's a few other people. Justin Long actually appears as Fred Willard's son in the final cut. Fred Willard's merely talking about him. It's, um, what is it, uh... It seems my son is on something called LSD and has been firing a crossbow into a crowd. <laughs> so at the time, I thought it was phenomenal that you could, there was so much good stuff that you had another film left over from it. But the reality is more that they made a film and it didn't work. So they had to gut the actual plot and replace it with improv. And that set the tone for the next 10 years of, uh, you know, Hollywood comedy filmmaking, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for the next the next great train. We'll see. Um, yeah, and I, I'm, I wonder what it's going to be. Because we must be approaching... I was trying to explain it earlier, but... Will Ferrell cannot seem hip to people. Will Ferrell is our generation's comedian. Mm. If you're 17 or 18... Yeah, Anchorman's funny, but you want your own people, don't you? Just as I like Belushi and Ackroyd. Mm. But growing up in the 90s, I was very excited about Ben Stiller, Coogan, Peg, Heap, etc., etc. So who are, the, ki- Chris Morris who are the kids into now, comedian-wise, I suppose? I've... Well, I'd even be embarrassed if it was Andy Samberg, because he's relevant and what they do is excellent. But So I don't know who they're into, but we've certainly seen over the last 10 years... Saturday Night Live has evolved. The cast, the main cast of Saturday Night Live are always used and incorporated in the music videos that the Lonely Island made. Yeah. But I think that this is what we, we were kind of getting at earlier. The Saturday Night Live is now best known for presidential impersonations mm. and its pop song parodies. I think they're only now doing so well off the likes of the Alec Baldwin as Donald Trump you know sketches and to give a potted history it's always it's always been up and down uh, yeah. 75 to 78 79 was a very successful period at the end of the 70s Lorne Michaels quit everyone quit apart from Brian Doyle Murray Gene Domanian took over and a doldrums was entered from which no one expected the show to ever recover alleviated only by Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo Domanian lasted only one catastrophic season she was booted along with all of the cast except for Murphy and Piscopo. Dick Ebersold stepped in in 81, ran the show for four or five years, during which it struggled to establish an identity, having come after an astonishingly successful five-year period that, of course, produced Aykroyd, Belushi, Chase, Murray, 
a lot of surprising names were on Saturday Night Live during the mid-1980s. Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey was there briefly, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Mm. They're comic performers, but you wouldn't think that having come off the back of Aykroyd, Belushi, Gilda, Lorraine, people who were definitely comedians. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. So between 83 and 87, it wasn't any great shakes. Then there was a resurgence with the introduction of Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, then a few years later, the bad boys of Saturday Night Live, as they were called, Chris Rock, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, David Spade. That ran its course, and then by the end of the century, the, the trump card there, I suppose, was Amy Poehler and Will mm. Ferrell. So it, it peaks and it troughs. And I think it's less culturally important than it was, because increasingly an audience is going straight to the source. They don't need Saturday Night Live to sort the wheat from the chaff. They can go straight to the improv troops themselves as I've said Second City and Upright Citizens Brigade in 1997 young comedians and improv actors were desperate to get a shot on Saturday Night Live by 2007 it's Lorne Michaels the producer of the show that's going to Andy Samberg and saying I want you and Andy's able to specify I'll join if you take on my two friends as writers Mm. as we've said it's place now within media is a 90-minute show broadcast late night on a Saturday, reduced to a couple of clips. Facebook or whatever. Shared, yeah, shared on Facebook or, or seen on YouTube. But then again, its cultural penetration is greater than ever because it was nothing that anybody talked about in the 90s and even into... I mean, when you were at university, did anybody no, mention it? No, of course not. No, people and know I, I, was? I was aware of it because the actors, the comic actors I'd loved, you know, over the past 30 years, all, all the names we've mentioned, you know, and, and the likes of Bill Murray, even Julia Louis-Dreyfus, because I was a Seinfeld fan. Uh, I, I knew that she yeah. came from an S- SNL background. I knew that, you know, Larry David had... I think he did an SNL stint, didn't he? Then he went to Fridays, which was like the, the rip-off of it. And then... Right. Maybe back. You're right. People weren't talking about it. It wasn't a water cooler show in the UK. Uh, you know, in the mid mid nineties, mid two thousands. And Ben Stiller was kind of a trailblazer in that regard. In the in the in the way in which I've spoken of Sandberg, Ben Stiller was on SNL in the middle of the nineties, but didn't really need it. Neither did Janine Garofalo. She was there for a season or two. Found it completely dispiriting. They didn't find a use for her because S, uh, until recently, SNL has always had a massive problem with figuring out what to do with women and yeah, minorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there are countless people, Keckner among them, that were there briefly, didn't get any airtime, but Stiller was one who had already made, who had come up as a comic actor and an actor in dramas in the 80s. He's in Empire of the Sun, for instance. Had his own show on MTV in 92, was briefly with Saturday Night Live, but that wasn't even a stepping stone. It was more of a detour from what he wanted to do. Yeah, so one of the things that was heartening... Again, speaking about the sh- a show that we don't get to see, but that has had an enormous cultural footprint with us, I liked that by about 10 years ago, the only people that could be named were Maya, Amy and Tina. And they were she was show running. They were the biggest stars on the show. There was a, a pretty good reversal from a time when just 10, 12 years prior, it had been all about those bad boys and their frat boy antics and I like some Adam Sandler films and I think generally he's able to be really funny but they're sophomoric they need uh, like a lot of things they need uh, a female influence to curb their indulgences mm. just like in Anchorman I suppose well, yeah, 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 <laughs> that's yeah. the theme of that Anchorman the actual, really sort of plot of the central plot of the whole film really to a certain extent isn't it 
if there could be a plot. Yeah, <laughs> could be a plot. And I, I'm trying to think of who else is even in the cast now. I couldn't name many. Uh, if I was in a pub quiz of who's in the, the current SNL cast, I know I know, know Keenan Thompson is 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 in yeah. there, isn't he? And as a as a supporting cast member, and he's in almost every sketch in some way, shape, or form. Uh, <laughs> and I think a lot of listeners to the show will be familiar with Keenan Thompson as Keenan and Kel from Nickelodeon back in the nineties. But I, I couldn't mention, yeah. I couldn't name any others. I mainly know them because. Saturday Night Live is still a reasonable springboard to get cast in a mainstream comedy. Yeah. Kyle Mooney turned up in Zoolander mm-hmm. 2. Bobby Moynihan usually gets cast in the Lonely Island videos. He's got a showy role in Sisters as the fella who accidentally does the coke. Taron Killam was in The Heat with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy, and I thought he was terrible. Vanessa Bayer, and then Kate McKinnon, we shouldn't forget as well. Standout role in Ghostbusters. Mm. It's now a very gynocentric, gyno or gyno, gynocentric show, which only that, that's a corrective, if anything, because it was so male oriented for its first 15, 20 years. But it doesn't have the importance it, do, it did have. And although comedy is dominated by its alumni, the films they're making aren't connected to Saturday Night Live in the same way. It's, it's more about Will Ferrell reaching back to his improv days and drawing the fresh crop from there. Jack McBrayer, for instance, Ian Roberts from Upright Citizens mm. Brigade. And I, I'm quite romantic about the uh, the regeneration of comedy and the patronage which is paid. Ben Stiller's always been particularly good at this. Uh, cable guy. Stiller tried to fit in everybody he'd worked with on the Ben Stiller show. Janine Garofalo, Bob Odenkirk, David Cross. Shall we roll for Jack Black and Owen Wilson? Zoolander. Did the same for Judah Friedlander. Patton Oswalt gave the best role to Will Ferrell. Tropic Thunder, Jay Baruchel, Danny McBride. Alter Mitty, Kristen Wiig, Adam Scott. I've always found Ben Stiller very generous. Oh, almost forgot. I won't be able to make it, fellas. Veronica and I are trying this new fad called uh, jogging. I believe it's jogging or yogging. It might be a soft J. I'm not sure, but apparently you just run for an extended period of time. It's supposed to be wild. So Ron's not coming? No, Ron's coming. It's the pancake breakfast. We do it every month. I realize that. But sometimes you just gotta look yourself in the mirror and say, when in Rome. The bottom line is, you've been spending a lot of time with this lady, Ron. You're a member of the Channel 4 news team. That's a given. That's a given. We need you. <clears throat> Hell, I need you. I'm a mess without you. I miss you so damn much. <laughs> I miss being with you. I miss being near you. I miss your laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I, miss, I miss your scent. I miss your musk. <clears throat> when this all gets sorted out, I think you and me should get an apartment together. Take it easy, champ. Why don't you stop talking for a while? Maybe sit the next couple plays out. Two of the best comedy films possibly of all time. And uh, you know what? That Rewatching Animal House this week, talking to you about it again as well, um, really reminded me how, how great that is and how rare that is too. And Anchorman, of course, a film that did set the tone for, seems to st- still be with us, still have ramifications to this day. 
uh, where the people mm. are, uh, you know, I can think of Anchorman every time I'm watching a film in the cinema and people are trying to riff over each other by literally trying to shout louder than the other person the same line over mm. again and again. <laughs> Maybe I can thank Anchorman for that in some way. But uh, yeah, it's it's not unlike what happened with George Lucas and Star Wars. George Lucas was doing something that was personal to him, that was his own artistic expression, and it accidentally became the biggest film of all time. It wasn't his intention, he was just making what he wanted to make. And in the same way, when Adam Mackay and Will Ferrell, backed by Judd Apatow, made Anchorman, it wasn't their intention to create an instructive for the next 10 or 15 years of Hollywood comedy. And it didn't even do that well. It became a phenomenon on DVD. Like I say, that that was on at Uh, every house party. It really was for a while. Mm. That and Wedding Crashes, uh, and I know what one. I know what yeah. one. I'm, what film I'm a bigger fan of. But uh, Judd Apatow's accomplishment is is fantastic. After Anchorman in 2004, he hit his stride in about 2007, and then within a five year period. And I'm not sure if we'll be looking at these films later on in your A to Z, but Knocked Up, Superbad, Drillbit Taylor, Pineapple Express, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is a key one. Jason Segel is a great writer of romantic yeah. comedies, and that introduced Nick Stoller and Jason Segel as an interesting duo. And my two favourites, both by Jake Kasdan, the TV set with David Duchovny, and the unparalleled Walk Hard, probably the best comedy made this century. And more recently, although Judd Apatow's directorial efforts are overlong, he has produced Girls. That's true, yeah. And Love, and Crashing... Yeah. He keeps doing interesting yeah, things. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Girls and Love. Haven't seen Crashing, but uh... for me, he's produced only one bad film in the last ten years, and somehow it happened to be Harold Ramis's last film, Year One. No idea how they screwed it up. But in the plus column, Judd Apatow has gone out of his way for the last half decade to cement as cinematic comedy propositions: Rose Byrne, Emily Blunt, Amy Schumer, Bridesmaids, Trainwreck girls on television he's making all the right moves but in execution i'm i've lost any taste for this improvisational style it might be an age this is 40 years too long to be there (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 anyway thanks for a really good uh reminiscing on on those those two films and uh, i can't remember what we've got coming up next on electronic labyrinth what we'll be looking at next i don't actually have um Annie Hall, oh, it is Annie Hall and Bananas. Of course it is. Two... Yeah, now talking of comedy writers who can properly script a scene. <laughs> yeah, Woody Allen is um, probably the first and foremost example to provide there. Uh, although Annie Hall, a film that had a completely different subplot that was then re-edited to make a romantic comedy. That was... We can't help but make no, connections, that can was, we? That was supposed to be a murder mystery, I'm sure of it, wasn't it? And then they... Yeah, it was it was going to be called anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure and links in with her name, yeah. Annie Hall. It was three hours or so. They ripped out the murder plot and 18 or so years later, it became Manhattan That's Murder it. Mystery, and so, which is why Brickman gets They re-edited Annie Hall and inadvertently created the modern romantic comedy that, uh, that yeah, <laughs> yeah, people yeah. have been replicating ever since for that as well. Yeah, well, I'm a huge Woody Allen fan, and um, I'm really looking forward to talking about those two. I can't wait till we get to the L's, though. I know I've mentioned this before, but I think my favourite Woody Allen film is Love and Death. Uh, So, shame we can't talk about that, but uh, Annie Hall, (laughs) that'll have to do. (laughs) And as far as Woody Allen films go, it's a pretty decent place to start. So, uh, 
that'll be uh, that'll be a good one i look forward to that thank you very much for listening to electronic labyrinth we've been looking at anchorman and animal house on the hottest day of the year and i thank you very much for bearing with the technical problems that we were experiencing i don't know if it was the atmospherics maybe it was the flying ants they they migrated so wonderfully the other day luke it was a beauty to behold it really was the power of nature i took some pictures they didn't come out particularly well but it made me wistful for our old days at 114 it just looked like um a lot of insects in one place but but yeah i i get the point uh, they come in waves i've had um the wood lice uh i've had the plague of sort of beetle looking things and now i'm onto flying <laughs> ants so i've i've had um i've had it in several waves this year you know what it made me think of immediately though bugs life i was mm. thinking of flick and hopper and all of that do they fly at the end and then and then when i told thorpe about it she quoted one of your favorites Oh, uh, one day I'll be a beautiful butterfly and then everything will be better. Yeah, I'm a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> and then he's, he's got the tiny wings, but he's still a big fat cat, yeah, caterpillar. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, the I... bit you like is, you like, the bit you always do is, don't listen to them, they are poo-poo heads. <laughs> they have poo, I think they have poo-poo hands because they're flies. <laughs> they're flies and they've been digging yeah. around in dung all day, I think. But yeah, the I thought the same platter. thing. <laughs> Who ordered the poo-poo platter? Yeah, there's, there's loads of great one-liners uh, in that in that movie, loads. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought the same thing when I was looking down. I thought uh, uh, all of the ants, I could see thousands of ants on the ground. It really did remind me of Bugs Life. Uh, it didn't look like they were having as much fun as in Bugs Life. They recycle as well. They recycle fabulously. The phalanx departed over the course of 40 minutes. And I went back out an hour later and two dozen of them hadn't got very far. Maybe the sun had killed them, I'm not sure, but they'd fallen to the patio and died. And then 45 an hour after that, the little ants came and took them away to the extent that when uh, I saw <laughs> I saw a couple dragging one of the flying ants, the wing came off and they took that with them as well. So he was running behind like within a kind of an Indian <laughs> feather. Hey guys, wait up, wait up. Uh, yeah, lovely nature. So thank you very much for bearing with all the technical problems. We are a new podcaster, and I'm an especially new podcaster. I'm soon to get a balanced art microphone stand, and that should eliminate some of the hums and drops in and out that we experience. But it did give us the opportunity to right a wrong. We got to the end of the recording, and I realised the next day and then said to Luke, we didn't mention once the incredible soundtrack, the score, the wonderful Elmer Bernstein score from Animal House, which is one of the most glaring differences between comedies in the 70s and 80s and comedies now it was john landis who got elmer bernstein out of his career writing for the likes of the magnificent seven and the great escape and gave him a go on animal house i I can't remember how it came about but landis hooked up with bernstein and said have you ever tried comedy i think you could do this very nicely and it was a brilliant new second career for someone who was already by that stage in his 60s Mm. they went on to score with such memorable themes some of our favourite comedies, Stripes, Airplane, Trading oh, Places, wow. Wow, yeah, Spies yeah. Like Us, Three Amigos, and Stripe. And it's very marked that modern comedy films aren't respected cinematically like they, like they were in the 70s. When they made a comedy in that period, the cinematography was given a little bit more time and especially the score was really considered... Mm. And that's something that we've lost. And I bring it up today and we add it to the end so that we can play out to some of that wonderful Elmer Bernstein score. So thank you very much. I've been Fletcher Walton. I've been Luke Littleboy. Cheerio. 
Uncle Jonathan's corncob pipe.